Also, uh, we usually have some baptisms at camp. Um, we don't have any coming up this time, so we thought we'd just put it out there one more time to see if anyone is interested to get baptised. If you're kind of like, oh, I've heard about that, and I don't totally know what that is, come have a chat. You know, We'll talk about it. Um, it's, it's no big deal. It's just dying and rising again. Um, so um, come, come have a chat to me about that. And um, yeah, it's always a really special moment. And particularly if you've been wanting to get baptised, one of the great things about it happening at camp is you already have like 60 of your whanau around. So you don't have to like, you know, organise people to drive to the freezing cold south coast or something like that and then provide them with lunch afterwards, you know. Like um, you, can, uh, you can just come and can do, do it with us. Um, so we are doing, uh, we've been doing this three-week series around worship. Who's, who's found this helpful stuff so far? Yeah, a couple of people. Good. Um, so we've been looking at what worship is. Basically, we have this crew and blueprint uh, who, who are looking at the cultural change of our community over the last year as we've grown. Um, and, uh, and that's been a bunch of discussions around like how we do pastoral care. Um, but with a lot of things, we've been asking the question of everything we do, why do we do it? Um, so we've been going, teaching, why do we do that? Worship, why do we do that? And then we've said, what is the culture we have? And we've named that, and then what is the culture we want? And basically going through the parts of our community and making sure that we haven't just gone to that habit of doing stuff because it's what you do, right? Because church is really good at doing that. Um, and so one of our processes uh, came to um, realising some stuff about our worshipping culture and the fact that sometimes I think we have as a community been a little passive in our response to worship or we've been a little confused on what exactly is going on here. Like, I think at times we've thought that this is 60 or 80 people sitting in a room having our individual quiet time with God, which is a weird thing. We don't really need to all be in the same room together to do that, eh? Like, we could all do that on our own. In fact, we should all be doing that on our own. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's like we, we go to worship and we stand for 30 seconds and then we all sit down and get out our journals. It's like, well, we should have all just gone to a park or something like that, you know? <laughs> Why are we all here in the same room? Why did people rehearse these songs? Why did people write these songs? Um, so that we could sit on our own and write in our journals. Now, sometimes God might lead us to those moments of profound intimacy or, or one-to-one stuff with God. But um, this, this coming together, this communal worship is something else. And so we basically broke it down to these three things, which you'll be becoming very familiar with now if this is the third week you've, you've been here in the series. And the three things are, firstly, that worship is for declaration. So the question of who is God? We come here to declare who God is, to say that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is almighty, that he is infinite, that he loves us, that, he's, that he became God incarnate in Jesus Christ and took our place on the cross and rose again. And so we come here to declare who God is, to declare who God is to ourselves, to each other, to our city, and if you want to get real spooky, to the universe and all creation. So we declare who is God. Secondly, unity, which I spoke on last week. Who are we as the people of God? We come here to worship, and the words that we have in our songs are to remind one another of the commitments we have made to Christ and to remind us of the things we believe. And that has historically always been the purpose of worship, that we come to affirm what we believe together. And then finally, intimacy, who am I? So this idea that when we look upon the face of God and we see how he looks at us, 
then we realise who we are too. And it brings us to this profound moment of repentance, which is not necessarily repentance that is, I'm so sinful, forgive me, but it's sometimes, I'm so broken, heal me. I'm, I'm so oppressed, protect me. I'm so hurt, hold me. And, and so that there is this thing of declaration, who is God, unity, who are we, intimacy, who am I? And so tonight, the last of those three we're going to talk about is around declaration. And so I want to begin at John 1, probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the, the whole Scriptures. And it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you would have heard me talk about here before that when it says the word there, the Greek it's referring to is this word logos. And what logos means is the cohesion, the cohesion of the universe. In the beginning, before all of it was Christ, and Christ created it, but Christ was in it, and Christ was the cohesion of all of it, there is nothing in all existence that can exist without the presence of God in it. He is sustaining all. His breath is sustaining the entire universe. And that's what I mean when we declare that we speak to the universe. This is why we have passages like Isaiah 6.3, where Isaiah has this, this vision of this throne room. And, and they, the cherubim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's not just people who are full of God's glory, but every molecule, every atom of this earth radiates God's glory and cannot exist without the presence of God with it for a moment. He is the logos, the cohesion that holds all of it together. It's why we have in Luke 19.40, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they wave palm fronds and they throw them down on the ground in front of him. And the disciples are saying, well, this is going to get you killed. Stop the crowd. And he says, even if they stopped worshipping, the rocks would get up and worship me instead. Because this cohesion, this logos is in everything. And we could all do with thinking about that a little bit more. That God inhabits every space, that the entire world is divine and enchanted. Interestingly, immediately following John 1, we have the story of Jesus and the miraculous catch of fish. So we go from this God is in everything, the logos, the cohesion, to Jesus proving it by walking up to some fishermen and saying, fish, get in that net, and the fish get in the net. Because God is in everything, and all of it submits to him. Christ, who was above all things, in all things, and through all things, calls out to creation, and it responds. And that's quite a different thing if you think about something kind of mystical, like healing or the miraculous, eh? But it's not a case of mumbo-jumbo magic words, but it is God present in all things that we are calling forth to put things right. So in the beginning, we had the God who is in all things and through all things. That's what we're told in the beginning. And then Revelation 4, other end, the end of the story, we arrive at this kind of fantastical passage. Um, and I'm not going to clarify a bunch of the weirdness in here. So if you're just like, what was that about? Um, you can go read it yourself. Um, 
So I'm going to begin in Revelation 4, 5, so partway through the passage, so you have even less context. Um, So there's a throne and Jesus is in it, all right? That's what I'll tell you, context, there you go. Um, In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So in the beginning we have God in and through all things, and at the end we have all things worshipping and declaring that he is God. Our story begins with God giving life to all creation, and it ends with all creation laying its crowns down and realising we were made for worship. Worship is what we are here to do. This is why in the Anglican prayer book, as we head into the Eucharist, There's this passage which I thought of today where it says, Therefore, with all the faithful who rest in him, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name, forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. So worship is about us returning to our highest call as God's creation to declare who he is. And so what I want to look at kind of quickly today is what it is that we're declaring when we worship. So three things. Isn't it great how the scripture always groups things in three for sermons? Um, So number number one, we declare the nature of God. So I'm not talking about the personality of God. I'm talking the very physicality of God. We declare the nature of God. We say God is three in one. He is Trinitarian. And from that we say God is a community and following him therefore cannot be a solo sport. We say he is infinite, the Alpha and the Omega. God was before and will be after whatever we are experiencing now. God was before and will even be after Trump. Isn't that good news? (laughs) He is almighty and all-powerful. God is more powerful than the powers that oppress and threaten us. God is more powerful than our hubris as wealthy Westerners. But we are also saying that even before God has done anything, even before we know his character, God is worthy of worship purely because of his physical nature. Before he has done anything, before we know that God is good, God is still supreme. Which is an interesting thought for our generation to get our head around, because often actually our intellect and our morality lives above God. And so when God ceases to satisfy my intellectual or moral code, then he can no longer be God to me. But he is still supreme. He is still worthy of worship even when you don't agree with him. 
And the interesting thing is that this God absolutely transcends. His nature transcends our ability to know him and name him. So every time we talk about God, we are reduced to metaphors. Every time. So we, uh, we say he's three, but he's kind of one. We say he's the beginning and the end. He is all-powerful. He is infinite. We say he is he, which isn't that helpful either. These are not precise measurements or units. They're attempts at describing the infinite and the immeasurable. We've created stories and metaphors so that we can talk about God, but really what we're talking about is like about this much of who he is. And you have this with Job. You know, Job has lost everything and arrives at this point, Job 36, 26 to 33. He says, How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters the lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm, even the cattle make known its approach. So it's this thing of like we are reduced to metaphor in describing the nature of this infinite God. And I think one thing that is real comfort in this infinite, all-powerful, indescribable God is when you are in a place of powerlessness or when you are in a place of frailty, you know that at the essence, the nature of God, you have one who is all-powerful. That in your powerlessness, God is not like you. God is not as frail as you are. So we begin by declaring the nature of this God And we declare also the character of God. We declare that this isn't a God who we worship just because he is mighty. We don't worship him out of fear. He is not a tyrant king. He is the servant king. We worship him because he's actually a good God. And not all gods are good. Like the scriptures are full of gods who are not good. Consumerism is a lousy, hateful, spiteful God. But we serve a good God. The character of God is loving. The kind of love that gives itself for another on the cross. The character of God is gracious. The kind of grace that forgives even its betrayer. The character of God is compassionate. The kind of compassion that that dies alongside thieves and murderers. Before we talked about the nature of an unknowably powerful and infinite God who we can only grasp in metaphor, but that God becomes incarnate in Jesus. That unknowably powerful and infinite God became a loving, gracious, compassionate and just man. The powerful and infinite God became mortal and finite in Jesus. So we declare together... That this all-powerful God surrendered himself to become all-vulnerable in the hands of humanity. That's quite powerful. The unknowable, the metaphorical, the infinite, 
the, the Almighty became all vulnerable to bring humanity back to himself. So we declare the nature of God, that he is powerful and infinite, and we declare the character of God, that he is good, loving, and just. And finally, we declare the faithfulness of God. Any uh, Narnia fans here? Quite a few. I realise today I think this is the first time I've ever quoted Narnia in a sermon, which is pretty good for like 12 years, eh? Um, it's like stock standard there. Um, so in The Magician's Nephew, we hear that, that Aslan, who is the lion, who's, you know, um, I love actually, um, he's like the, the allegory of Jesus, but there's this amazing, like, um, has anyone seen those, like, um, five-second trailers on YouTube where they condense a movie into, like, five seconds? So, like, there's one for Titanic, and basically it's like, I love you, and then the boat just going, bloop. Um, and, um, the, I love the Narnia one, because it's just, like, fanfare music, and then the lion just appears behind the hill and goes, I'm Jesus. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to read you a part of this creation song that Aslan sings. This is quite cool. You can close your eyes or pretend it's story time or whatever if you want. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lifting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. Polly was finding the song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark furs sprang up along a ridge about a hundred yards away, she felt that they were connected with a series of deep, prolonged notes which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked round you, you saw them. That was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid. Oh, it's so beautiful, eh? I love the idea that God sings this universe, this cohesion, this logos, into creation. And again and again in the scriptures, we see humanity reply with songs of their own to his song. In Exodus 15, we've had the Israelites escape Egypt. And we have the song of Miriam. She says, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. She writes a song back to God. Or then there's the song of Mary in Luke 1 after she discovers that she is carrying the Christ child. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remember to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So God sings all things into creation. And when we talk about declaring God's faithfulness, worship is when a new song rises up within each of us in reply to what God has created in us. It's when we reply to that Logos, when we reply to this universe, when we become the rocks that stand up and say, God, you are gracious, you are compassionate, you are powerful, you are infinite. But further than just those, we reply with the stories of the faithfulness he has had in each of our lives. A few years ago when I was really, really unwell with depression and anxiety, I remember it went on for about three years. And there'd be like these just absolutely frustrating moments. I can remember once on my day off where I was playing, um, I was playing a PlayStation game, like a basketball game. <laughs> and I, uh, it's like, you know, really exciting end of the game. About five seconds to go. And I uh, have this three-point shot which would win the game. And it goes and it bounces off the hoop And then I just burst into tears. (laughs) You know, you just end up in this profound point of like lowness and pain. The smallest things will just tip you over the edge. And for about two or three years, there would just be these things which were not personal at all that would just spin me out. And I would ask God again and again and again, God, bring me free from this. You know, I'd say like, my soul, why are you downcast? Lift up your eyes to God, all the psalm stuff, and nothing seemed to happen. And then one day, a few years later, um, about three years in, I just remember this week where it was like suddenly the clouds parted and it began to lift. And I can't talk to anyone about that without having this deep sense of gratitude to God without having this deep sense of his faithfulness that I waited and I waited and I waited and God you came through it's like God sang a song that brought me into existence and I got to sing a song back to him of his faithfulness and that's what we get to do here when we worship so we get to stop, we get to acknowledge the nature of God, his infiniteness, his power. We get to acknowledge that we serve a good God. And then we remember the stories of his faithfulness and like Miriam, like Mary, we sing back to him. And we say, oh God, you're good. God, you're worthy. God, you have come through. Or if you're in the middle of it, God, you will come through. And sometimes we have to sing those songs for one another too. That's what worship's about when we declare. Why don't you close your eyes for a second? I'm going to read a little more of Narnia. The lion opened its mouth, but no sound came from it. 
He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees. Far overhead from beyond the veil of blue sky which hid them, the stars sang again. A pure, cold, difficult music. Then there came a swift flash like fire, either from the sky or from the line itself, and every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. The beasts and birds, by contrast, cry out and cry out a reply in harmonic unity. Hail Aslan, we hear and obey. We are awake, we love, we think, we speak, we know. We're just going to sit in silence for a moment. And before we go into worship, we're just going to invite the Spirit of God to raise up in us a song back to him of his faithfulness, of gratitude for who he is and what he has done in us. So just stay with your eyes closed where you are. Lord, we invite your spirit to come. We invite you to speak to us, to not forget your salvation, to not forget what you have done in our lives. And Lord, would you raise up a song in each of us back to you.